Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but this night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples that he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, I'm glad to be back with you, opening the Christian scriptures to to learn from them with you. Uh, Whether you're in person here, or maybe you're uh, with us virtually worshiping, uh, we're glad you're here. And if you're new, we'd love to to get to know you better. Um, Again, if you're here, we're gonna hang out afterwards outside. Um, Please join us for that, and it's beautiful weather. And then if you're not with us in person, uh, maybe just, reach out to us in some way, send us an email at info at Northcross or sit at northcrosschurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, To all of you, new and familiar, I'm really glad you're here. It's wonderful to be with you um, on a Sunday. I'd like to take a minute or two to explain why we're looking at this passage, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Uh, Next week, we will pick up, uh, I promised this for a long time, (laughs) we are going to get back into the life of David in 2 Samuel next week. And we'll be moving through 2 Samuel and the life of David for the next several months. But in the meantime, I did want to um, continue to ask questions and to talk about what happened on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Mike Cosner kind of, we talked about the sermon for him last Sunday, and we kind of both talked about what does it look like to actually live into the resurrection and live out of the resurrection of Jesus in our everyday lives. And the scene this morning, I think, in chapter 21 of the book of John, the scene between Peter and the resurrected Christ is a great example of what it, what it means to get at what the first Easter Sunday means. How did Jesus still deals with us? How Jesus still meets and then moves you and me? That's what we're gonna look at this morning. But let's prepare our hearts and minds with prayer. So would you pray with me and for our time and God's words to us this morning? Father, um, we come to you in this service in a lot of different places. Um, some of us are feeling a little bored. Some of us are feeling a real excited. Some of us feel well in between. Um, some of us are um, feeling beat up by life. Some of us feel like we're on top of life. And again, some of us feel in between. And I pray that you would meet us in those spaces, the spiritual and emotional and social places, the physical places that we live. And I pray by your spirit, through your word, that you'd work once again. Jesus, would you become more real to us, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Would you be high and lifted up, Jesus? Would you not let us leave this building without having encountered you in a new way, and away from an old story, and a new, fresh way to put it into our lives. Lord, help us to do the math this morning. Help us to carry this information into our hearts and our minds and into our lives by your spirit. Lord, without your spirit, we can do nothing. We need your spirit to work, and we ask that you, by your spirit, would work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name for this time. Amen. So one of my first or earliest memories is of my dad leading me by the hand through a maze of hallways into the inner depths of the Lazarus department store in Columbus, Ohio. I can still remember the giant white squares of marble that were flecked with black and how the hard-soled shoes made a ricochet of crisp clacks on that marble. I remember the plate glass window of a particular shop with so many yellow and, blo and, and white block letters that talked about what the store did. I didn't even actually know what the store was called. Every several months, my dad would take me there to that store, and he would either pick up or drop off a pair of shoes. Uh, you see, my dad is still to this day a bit traditional, very loyal. He buys one pair of fairly expensive shoes and then he, that he likes, like walking shoes even, and then he spends his money and his time wearing them out and wearing them until they wear out, and then going to a shoe repair. When they start to fall apart, when they start to get worn down, he doesn't throw them away, he takes them to get resold and rehealed and restitched and reshaped with in new inserts. For instance, my dad had the same pair of wingtip shoes for decades and probably spent as much money, if not more money, than buying a new pair of shoes um, with repairs. I feel weird sharing this story because it feels weird to us. That's just not what most of us do. When I do the math and about the time and the cost of what it takes to get a new pair of shoes, um, I, whether it's sneakers or dress shoes, I'm the first to throw away my shoes and get a new pair of shoes or give them away, whatever. Um, but that's not the way my dad was. And the way that my dad treats his shoes still to this day is much more in line with the way that God treats his creation. 
This is how God treats his people and the world. In the words of the theologian Al Walters, God does not make junk and God does not junk what he's made. God does not make junk and he does not junk what he's made. That is, God is careful with, he's fond of what he's made and therefore he desires to restore us. And this is such an important point in our world that is so disposable. We favor paper towels and tissues over uh, hand towels and handkerchiefs, especially all the more so in the pandemic. We see God's preference, his inclination to restore in John chapter 21. Remember, just days before our scene today, in the gospel story, Peter was weeping bitterly. He had just watched himself say and do the very things he had promised out loud to many people he would never do. He never even thought it was possible. He denied knowing Jesus even three separate times on the night that Jesus needed him the most. Only to hear the rooster's crow cement Peter the rock's worst failure. But Jesus' words and actions with Peter in our passage this morning, only days later, this way that Jesus treats Peter shows us that what words like salvation mean, right? Salvation does not mean throwing me away and buying a new and improved and perhaps fairly cheap to make SID 2.0. Salvation instead means something like the way that Jesus deals with Peter here. He deals with us when we start to fall apart when we run out on him, when we get worn down again, what God and Jesus do in this case is much more like the Lazarus shoe repairer than Zappos. God painstakingly cleans us. He resoles us. He restitches us. He reheals us. He reshapes us. And God does this work not so we can sit on a display shelf all pretty, but so that we can get moving, so that we can do the footwork of daily ministry. All this is to say that Jesus restores us from our failures to love and to be loved. That's what he's up to. He's restoring us from our failures to be loved and to love in order for us to, to be loved and to love others better than new. So he's restoring us by his love to love others. We see this truth about Jesus's restoration in John chapter 21, verses one through 17, right? There, Jesus uses intentional actions and words to remind and recall Peter. And this process accomplished in three overlapping movements is a detailed description of the way, the general way that Jesus also refurbishes us. So here are the three overlapping movements of Jesus, which is also your outline this morning, which you can find in your electronic bulletin or projected behind me. We'll look at these together. First, verses one through 14, Jesus restores us by old reminders of relationship. Second, verses nine through 17, Jesus restores us by old reminders of a still present wound. And third, in verses 15 through 17, Jesus restores us for a new call to wounded healing. Let's begin with the beginning and we're gonna look first at verses one through 14 and the way that Jesus restores us and Peter by old reminders of a still present relationship. When we look at this scene on the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, 
It's important to realize this is not Easter Sunday. That's why we don't preach it necessarily on Easter Sunday. John 21 is not occurring three days after Jesus' death and burial. It's not the first, but the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples as a resurrected form. Verse 14, for I want this, we all want this to be some sort of neat and tidy emotional process, right? I want this restoration, the scene to have happened when the first time the resurrected Jesus and Peter lock eyes, right? I want it to be restoration at first sight. But instead, this scene is a mess. It happens in the third meeting, the third meeting after Jesus' resurrection. Peter has seen the empty tomb. Jesus has shown up in Jerusalem in a locked room two separate times, one time to eat some fish and bread in front of them, another time to let Thomas touch his wounds. And Peter is there both times, standing there, I can only guess awkwardly, but like two out of touch friends, like those touchy family members that we gather with regularly at holidays. Peter and Jesus continue to see each other again and again in the company of others and things remain unresolved and awkward. These less than straightforward encounters propel us into the scene this morning Jesus waits until his third resurrection appearance to do business with Peter, to remind Peter and us of Peter's three public denials of Jesus. Did Peter see what Jesus was kind of underlining here in this passage? We don't know. All we can gather is that in the restlessness and self-doubt of waiting for Jesus to show up again, and perhaps waiting and wondering if Jesus will show up again, Peter goes back to what he knows, fishing. this time with the sons of Zebedee, but with four more disciples also in tow in verses two and three. Why does Peter go right back to his old way of life? Is Peter just killing time? <laughs> you know, trying to get back to what he, uh, trying to just get through another night waiting on Jesus? Or is it something more? Is he making this sort of decisive decision here? Is he saying, I'm gonna go back to what I knew pre-Jesus? I'm going to try to settle back down and make a living again, silently counting himself out, counting himself out of ministry and out of friendship with Jesus. As if the past three years were just one more pie in the sky dream. The past three years were just one more swing and a miss. I tend to agree with the commentator Dale Bruner here. While Peter is going back to fishing, and that isn't necessarily evil, but it is a gesture of giving up everything for nothing. This is the very word that John strategically uses for what they caught that night when they were fishing. Nothing. But notice that the story doesn't end here with Peter and company, with us and our restless regrets catching a net full of nothing. No, verse 5 tells us that the day was breaking. The reluctant retreat to isolation into the past has failed. It's failing. Instead, Jesus performs yet another miracle, in this instance, in the form of intentionally bad advice and a miraculous haul. If you're fairly familiar with Peter's story in the Bible, perhaps there's all sorts of service bells ringing in your memory bank. 
right? You're thinking, wait a minute, I've heard this before. This is just like what happened where Jesus met Peter for the second time, when Jesus called Peter into the ministry in Luke chapter five. And John first, then Peter himself recognizes the similarities and they do the math. It is the Lord, John cries. And Peter, in his excitement, nearly naked, covers himself up in the worst swimming gear possible, a long flowing robe, and he kicks it 100 meters freestyle to the shore to be with Jesus. You see, Peter longs to see. He longs to be nearby to Jesus. But why? Because the dawn and the miraculous catch in the midst of Peter's hesitant two steps backwards at this moment, did what two previous resurrection, cat, resurrection appearances could not do for Peter. Jesus reminded Peter that they are all still good. They're still all good. Their friendship is fixable as far as Jesus is concerned. To point this out, Jesus intentionally reenacts how he called Peter into discipleship. And he seals the deal with some bread and fish fellowship on the seashore, right? In verses nine through 13. But I want you to see the good news for us, for you and for me, that should make us want to just jump out of the boat and swim for it, right? To pray and to sing and to fellowship our way back into sort of Jesus's presence. There are things that we've all done. There are things that we've said. There are things that we've thought. There are things that we haven't said and done and thought recently that we are very ashamed of in this room, that I'm very ashamed of up here. And the question is, has that earned us a spiritual demotion? We have a semi-sinking suspicion that perhaps God is far, far, far away from us. He wants nothing to do with us. Doubts, seasons of unbelief, poor romantic choices, poor parenting choices, compulsive emotions, addictions, a war path of erect relationships. But your failure, that failure, my failure, those very failures are just not big enough. How do they compare with denying Jesus to his face in public three separate times? I mean, does it get any worse than betrayal? If you're honest about your relationships and you think about them, what's the worst thing that can happen? Top three, if not top, top is betrayal, right? The poet Dante even thought that betrayal was a huge deal. In fact, he made the innermost circle of hell in his divine comedy for people who were betrayers, for betrayers who wouldn't go back who wouldn't swim head and heart first back to Jesus. Look, if Jesus can forgive Peter's self-serving denials, do you see what that means for us? In your own mind, perhaps, you got cut, right? You got kicked off of the team. But in Jesus' mind, you're not just still on the team. He's elected you captain. Jesus' wounded hands tending the fire, him waving us over to get warm again and get some breakfast in us with him one more time. These tell us that he will give something of his life to fill our emptiness, that he will give something of his light 
to drive back our dark. In other words, this scene is a glimpse of what a restored relationship with Jesus can look like, or at least start with. But these reminders of a still present relationship, our first point included unpleasant elements as well, right? For instance, the sharp smell of lit charcoal wafting on the April wind does not remind Simon Peter of a barbecue. It reminds him of a betrayal and it was extremely painful. That fire along with the day's dawning and three of Jesus's pointed questions served as old reminders of a still present wound and yet another source of restoration for Peter and for us. This is our second point this morning. You see, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus intentionally stages the timing of this meal at dawn. And he also stages the surrounds of this meal, the setting. They're huddled around a charcoal fire. The flaming charcoal's flickering light and heat and glowing heat are where the denial started for Peter, right? Think back to that night. At first, it was only to a semi-suspicious slave girl. And then the early dawn's light and heat are when the denials ended in a burst of oaths and curses, right? His third and final denial, the I'll be damns, literally, to the bystanders and to Jesus. I do not know the man. Jesus staged these reminders on purpose because Peter was bleeding out. His betrayal was festering. His fear and his failure and his self-reliance and his sadness were only partially scabbed over and they couldn't quite make it. The only way to give Peter and any of us full healing, our only way forward is to recognize and then expose the wounds that we carry. To give our wounds still raw to Jesus's wounded hands and forgiving care. Verses 15 and 17 are a clinical display of social and emotional and spiritual wound care treatment, right? Just look at the way that Jesus goes directly to where the pain is. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus is on purpose reopening the wound to clean it out so that it can heal properly. He uses Simon's, Simon Peter's full name, Simon, to deal with Peter as he is, not as he wants to be, right? He's Simon first now. He doesn't, doesn't lead with Peter, which is a nickname, the rock. And then Jesus asks the question at the very center of everything in the relationship, all the behavior, all the self-doubts, all the feelings of shame. Do you love me? Do you love me? Please notice what Jesus isn't asking. It's not, how dare you? It's not, how could you? It's not, are you finished yet, Peter? It's not, do you know how that makes me feel, Sid? Jesus isn't scoring points here. It's, do you love me? Jesus is interested to ask if we're through with comparing ourselves, even just for a moment, 
ranking the degree of our love for Jesus against others, love for Jesus. He's asking, do you love me more than these? Jesus is inviting Peter and us as we enter into the scene. Jesus is inviting us out of relying on ourselves and our abilities. Because you see, competition and comparison are the chief ways that we feel okay about ourselves. Competition and comparison are the chief ways that we feel okay even in our relationship with Jesus. This is why Peter boasted in the teeth of Jesus' prediction of the disciples' denial, right? He said, even if everyone else falls away, I, only I, Lord, would never betray you. This is why in our driven moments in life, we say that we're only competing with ourselves. But a recent psychological research, a pile of recent psychological research, suggests that self-competition in the home we own, the job title we have, the schools we or our children attend, the intense expense or cool factors of our clothes and hobbies. This self-competition, quote unquote, actually comes from estimating how we're doing, estimating how we're doing in relation to other people, right? This is what our happiness is. It's tied to how we think we rank, how we think we rank in in comparison to our peers, and really just how we stack up in life. But Jesus isn't done. He's not done. He doesn't leave us there. Verses 16 through 17, Jesus continues to therapeutically dig into our hearts. He asked the shortened version of the question, do you love me, two more times. If Peter felt uncomfortable at first, or maybe even a little reassured, by the second and then the third time, in verse 17, we're told it is a grief. It is hard to hear and painful. Jesus asks the same question three times total. He opens up the wound and he cleans it out three separate times to make a point, right? He's making a sure point. Jesus wants Peter to know that he's forgiven for all three of his denials, right? That Jesus loves him, Peter, right? That Jesus can love you. That Jesus loves you and me there at the deepest level the deepest level of who we are, that layer of us that we hide even from ourselves because it's well beyond appearances. It's that part of us that fights off Jesus's loving, all-knowing gaze, tooth and nail spitting. It's that layer all the way down, all three times, it's there we need to know that Jesus died on a bloody cross to love and to forgive us. C.S. Lewis highlights the goodness of this kind of painful restoration in a book that maybe some of you are familiar with or maybe a movie version of the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So in the story, Eustace is this annoying cousin, right? He, he shows up uninvited to Lucy and Edmund's time in the fantasy land of Narnia on a boat with Prince Caspian, the dream, sailing the Eastern Ocean, Great Eastern Ocean. But just to simplify things a bit, Eustace is rude, snobbish, a spoiled sport, and very selfish. So much so that unannounced to anyone else, he leaves when they get hit an island, and he just takes off. He steals some dragon treasure, and then he thinks, I'm gonna stay here forever. But what happens? He turns into a dragon, right? 
And then when he realizes he turns into a dragon, he realizes it's not going away anytime soon, he kind of goes into a sulky kind of hiding in a cave. You see, Eustace is stuck being a dragon. He's stuck there. And he worries he'll never be able to get off the island, let alone away from Narnia and back home. But Aslan, the lion, the Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan shows up on the scene and he leads Eustace to this pool of water where he tells him to undress and then enter the water. And Eustace realizes Aslan's telling him these directions that he actually wants him to shed his skin, his dragon skin like a snake. And so he scratches and he claws at himself, right? And he removes the first layer of skin and then the second layer of skin. And he claws, he scratches, and he removes the third, three layers of skin. And they fall to the ground. But then Eustace looks at himself in that pool of water and he sees a dragon reflected back still. And so after a lengthy pause, Aslan the lion says, you're gonna have to let me do it. And this is what Eustace says about that moment to Edmund, his cousin. Eustace says this about that scene. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. There it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he, Aslan, caught hold of me and threw me into the water, and it stung like anything, but for only a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And then I saw why. I'd been turned into a boy again. C.S. Lewis wonderfully captures the painful pleasure of, of restoration. And he alerts us to the fact that Jesus has to do the work. We can't do our own wound care. We can't forgive ourselves deep enough. We need Jesus to strip us. We need Jesus to forgive us. We need Jesus to forgive even our attempts at doing it ourselves. And as great as Jesus' restoration is, as great as these reminders that are set here of a still present wound, a still present relationship are, Jesus does all of this restoration work in our lives for a purpose. This is the purpose so that we might live out of a new calling to be wounded healers. That's our third and final point. In verses 15 through 17, Jesus asks Peter three variations of the same question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter responds all three times the variations of the same answer. Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know that I love you. It's a pointed and it's a humbling call and response going on here in this passage, right? And after each call and response, Jesus gives Peter a similar command three separate times. Feed my lambs, verse 15. Then tend my sheep, verse 16. And finally, feed my sheep, verse 17. The dialogue shows how Peter and his ministry, his love for others is going to be established. How is his love for others established? Peter's love for others is founded upon his love for Jesus. 
But more than that, our love for others is founded upon Jesus's bigger and better love for us. That's the primary motivation for our lives, for any love we can do, any ministry that we do in our lives, for tending and taking care of and looking after and leading and keeping honest with the weakest lambs and the strongest sheep. Right? What is it? What's the primary motivation? Jesus' love, right? What's the primary food we feed the, most, the people around us? Whether it's the most vulnerable or the most mature, Jesus' love. But what kind of love is Jesus' love? Love is this word that we use culturally so often and we so rarely define it, right? I mean, social media is like alive and lit with this word about being loving. But we so rarely define what it means. Is love just an emotional outburst, like, you know, sort of an upward, outward, all over surge of emotion? Perhaps based on this passage, love looks like an intentional action. An intentional action to remind someone that he or she is still good with you. For instance, what if we gave people in our lives second and third chances? What if we asked someone, a spouse, a child, a friend, a roommate, to do the very same thing that they failed at, failed at with us before. Love often looks like risking just that kind of disappointment, doesn't it? Maybe love is an intentional conversation where you ask about where someone's hurting but not healing. Maybe love is where you invite someone into the place of your own woundedness to remind him and be reminded that you both need Jesus's restoration, to remind her and to be reminded you are not too fallen apart for God to work through. What if we asked Jesus to do the work, to enter that pain with you before and after us? There's a description of what that kind of love looks like or could look like at the edges of Eustace's story in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You see, Eustace described how Aslan restored him from a dragon back into a boy, and he did this in a conversation, a dialogue, with Edmund, his cousin. And after Eustace relates all that happened to him, there's this exchange between Edmund and Eustace that is perhaps my favorite scene in all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Eustace's encounter with Aslan has produced this really beautiful self-awareness, maybe some honesty. And so Eustace says to Edmund, by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been a bit beastly. <laughs> it's a very 19th century British way of saying it. <laughs> when Edmund hears this, he remembers vividly his first encounter with Aslan his first journey into Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? When he betrayed Aslan, and his betrayal led Aslan to die in order to free him from the White Witch. And so Edmund says this such a powerful sentence to Eustace. That's all right. It's all right. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. <laughs> 
You were a donkey, but I was a traitor. You were a donkey, but I was a traitor. I can only imagine that Simon Peter, that, that apostle, forever had the same trump card that Edmund had, right? You can imagine the early church when someone would come up to him and thought that they should get out of the church, that they were unlovable, that they were unforgivable. All Peter had to say was, yes, you were a blank, but I was a traitor. I publicly denied Jesus three separate times the night he needed me most. And that's what it looks like to be a wounded healer, healing others' wounds through our wounds. Telling others that Jesus can love and forgive and work through you. Why? Because Jesus loves and forgives and works through me. That's the gospel. That's the restored shoes. That's the footwork of daily ministry in our lives, in our relationships. Would you pray once more with me? Father, thank you for this time and thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage again. It's a familiar one, even perhaps a familiar story from the voice of Don Treader, but Father, I pray that you would use it afresh. We are limping into this room. <laughs> we are bleeding out in this room and we are limping out of it soon. And I pray that you will get the stretcher out. And maybe it's not here, maybe it's not now, but Lord, would you start to go to work? Would you start to show us the ways that you love us, Lord? Um, and maybe it does hurt something fierce, but Lord, the refreshment, the pleasure of seeing ourselves as your children again. I pray for it. Show it to us. We beg. Thank you for this passage and its reminder to us. In your name, Jesus, we ask that you would use it in our lives. Amen.